0: All right, and uh, just a, a word to those of you, if you're visiting, we're just super glad that you're here. It's awesome to hear just stories of what the Lord is doing in and among us and around us and uh, just encourage it, the fruit that, that he's producing through his word, through the community that you're involving yourself in, through uh, the ways of the gospels, uh, just transforming your marriages, your lives. Uh, your families. It is, it is awesome. Um, uh, just as a way of introduction, if, if you're new to this gathering, I know we, we have a lot of new faces often who are wondering kind of what this is and what we do and what we uh, believe. And obviously, we hope that over time, you'll continue to hear and get a glimpse of that an understanding of that through the proclamation of God's word, through uh, seeing the songs that we sing. But um, just so you get a basic understanding, this is uh, at its simplest sense, a worship service. So we love to worship Jesus Christ because we believe that Jesus Christ, was God. He came in uh, full humanity and full divinity He lived without sin. He lived the perfect life that was necessary to appease and take the wrath of God for our sin. He had to be God to do that as well, to pay a debt that was infinite against our belittlement of his name. And then he rose again from the grave and he validated that he did all of that, that he forgives sin, that he reconciles us back to God, and that uh, we can have newness of life and not just newness of life, but a full, uh, really, world and, and living together in eternity with the people of God when this world passed. And so uh, we've been going through what's known as the gospel according to Luke. And what this gospel is, is it is a a gospel account of the life and teachings of Jesus. There's four. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, Luke's hope is that he would really lay before you the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, not so that you would just hear new facts, not so that you would just know new truths, but so that you would be absolutely and fully and entirely transformed by them. That, that, That you hearing about Jesus, seeing Jesus revealed in the written word of God and learning the truths about him would actually produce in you a new nature as you learn about his good saving work on the cross. So that's our our hope for you. You're going to hear the name Jesus probably more than any other name uh, every Sunday that you come in this room because uh, he's the name that we herald, that we worship, that we enjoy. He is the treasure that we have. And so um, that's our hope. That's our prayer. So um, I want to ask God to give us listening ears. I say every uh, Sunday that we cannot come in here thinking that just you simply hearing a bunch of truths from some guy sharing them from a Bible is somehow going to magically change you. You need what is known as the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, to do something in your mind, in your heart, to allow you to actually understand and live according to what God has revealed. So uh, would you join me in asking and begging him to do just that? Father, we desperately need... You, we need you to open eyes, we need you to open ears, we need you to invade this place in a way that is helpful, in a way that rids us of sin and grows us in holiness. God, we need you to raise the dead to life this morning. We need you to continue to keep those of us who are alive in Christ, alive and sustained by the purchasing work of your son. So Father, this morning would you graciously and kindly deal with our hearts and how they need to be dealt. Father, would you reveal and expose the things in us that need to be exposed? And would you help us to remember and believe the promise that it is for our joy and it is for the fullness of life that you do these things? That God, you're not a God who desires to take but give totally and fully generously, namely in your son. Father, speak to us as we study the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen amen. Luke chapter 21. We're going to finish out the chapter this morning, and just as a recap, I want to catch you up to where basically we're at. Um, We're in Passion Week, and actually in God's providence. I think this is wonderful that we're getting time to really walk through the final week of Jesus as we approach Easter on April 16th. So um, normally, you know, we really do celebrate Holy Week from Palm Sunday to uh, Easter Sunday, and we're going to be giving you readings and devotionals and stuff for that time. But what's awesome is uh, we get to actually walk through this together and take a, a long stretch for a number of weeks here during what is his Passion Week. It's, this isn't taking months for Jesus. You're just hearing it every, other su- every Sunday for this. And so uh, where we're at today is it's Wednesday of the Passion Week. So we saw him ride in on the colt on Monday. We saw him uh, just throw the money changers out of the temple on Tuesday. We saw last week how he's starting to teach again in the temple to crowds, to people who want to listen. And what will happen is he'll withdraw pretty much every night, go to the Mount of Olives because it was so crowded due to Passover. He had lodge outside the city. So he would get away and do that. Then he would come back in and teach and preach. He is about 24 hours away from his arrest. He's about 48 hours away from being crucified. So his mind is fixed. There's not going to be any more opportunities for mercy, for grace. He is now going to basically tell people, here's what's going to happen, okay? So, so he's no longer kind of welcoming people into the family of God, even though that can happen still. That's not his primary aim. His primary aim is, okay, the cross is imminent. The cross is close. Here's what this means for you. And here's what this means for the world. And so we're seeing Jesus say those things. And so here he's actually um, retreated to the Mount of Olives. He's with his disciples and he's basically helping them understand something that they're very confused about. Now last week we we learned a little bit about that, how um, they're very confused with what is understood as the reconciliation of God, that Jesus would go to the cross and reconcile Satan's sin and death and hell back and deal with it in fullness and grant it to those who trust in that work alone for forgiveness of sins. So that's that's how God reconciles people to himself through the work of Jesus. But they mistaken that for the consummation of everything. So what they thought was the reconciliation was really going to be Jesus ushering in the full kingdom, the new heaven heavens, the new earth, the curse is fully lifted, there is uh, fully people with God, no sin, no sorrow, no injustice. He's going to rule and reign permanently on the throne that was promised in, in Daniel, the Davidic covenant. So you have this kind of confusion that Jesus is going, okay, look, hey, there's things that are going to happen in the near future and the, the, the distant future, so don't be misled. Don't think that my crucifixion that's coming means I'm ushering in the kingdom in its fullness. Know that my second coming will come later and there are things that are going to happen in between. And so here Jesus is with his disciples and he's continuing to explain to them and help them understand this is how you're going to need to live in the already not yet that theologians call this time period. This is where all of us are the already not yet. Some of us are already Christians. We already have the kingdom of God in a sense, but we're still waiting for it in its fullness when he returns. And so uh, after teaching all day, he has retreated, and last week saw Jesus encourage the disciples and massively encourage us that we should expect persecution, and even though it will rise, it's our calamity is God's opportunity That we get to share with people, this is who Jesus is, this is what he's done, this is what is coming. That we don't see persecution in a frightful sense, but a hopeful sense. And then here we're going to see this continuation, verse 20. Here's what Jesus says. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles. until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, so Jesus is continuing. We saw last week he took a break in verses five to seven. He's still continuing to to share with them how this temple that they love, this this massively iconic place of hope that that the people of God would come to offer sacrifices, to repent of sin, to go to the high priest to be mediators between them and God, the place where God's presence dwelled for his people. Man, this place that was just amazing for them, that was a place of hope for them. Jesus basically was saying, Hey, the Romans are gonna come in in about forty years from me saying this and just lay the place to waste, right? So That was very discouraging for them. That gave them anxiety. That was um, one of the worst things you could hear as somebody who loved the God of the scriptures. And so um, as he shares this, he continues to show us that this destruction is going to come. Now remember, it was destroyed once before, right, um, in the exile. And then it was rebuilt a second time during the time of King Herod. And this is when it will be destroyed again. And Jesus is just simply being God here. Right? like I love the people that say, well, we're not really sure if he was God. No, he, he explains details. He has complete sovereignty, complete foreknowledge, complete understanding of how everything will happen, and here he's just telling them, hey, this is what's going to happen in about 40 years. Hey, this is what's going to happen to this temple that you love, this temple that you see, and ultimately we saw that he's actually just basically sending out an indictment on the religious system that you're not going to need a high priest anymore because I'm going to be your high priest. You're not going to need sacrifices anymore in this temple because I'm going to be your sacrifice. You're not going to need mediators because I'm your mediator. It's this amazing inauguration of what Jesus will do in the destruction of this temple. There's shadows behind it that point to you won't need to go to Jerusalem, You just like others don't need to go to Mecca. You won't need to go to any place for worship because Jesus Christ is the God who saves, restores, and now is all things for you. It's, it's a profound thing for the Christian. And so Jesus is showing the shadows of that. We learned that last week. And here he says, he's giving his specific foreknowledge and prophecies of what will happen. And he basically, it's very straightforward. Jerusalem's gonna be surrounded. And when that happens, this is when the Romans come in, uh, when they surround the temple, he says, uh, you're gonna to need to flee. And those who are in the area are gonna to need to flee. And if you're outside the city, don't run into the city. Now, the reason this is a huge deal is, understand in this day and age especially, if you were looking for refuge in times of trouble, the city's the one place you'd run to. <laughs> Like, that's the one place you'd want to be. Jerusalem was great for defense. It was on a high altitude. So it was a great place to go for shelter. And Jesus says, hey, when this happens, you're not going to be anywhere near it. You're going to want to flee. You're going to want to run. And Jesus says that this will not be the place that you find relief in that day of vengeance. And he's specific. Everything that Jesus says, here's the thing, that he ever says has and will fully come to pass. Always. Um, He gives you explicit detail here, and what's great is if you know your history, um, and I'm talking about secular historians outside of the Bible. Uh, You can study these guys that clearly describe this time where Jesus prophesied this years before, how in AD 70, the Romans come in, and if you know military tactics, historically, the Romans would love to just withdraw all food and supplies from any city that they would take over, the cities that they would slaughter. It was awful. It was horrific. So what would happen is this made it very difficult for nursing moms. They, They had dehydration. They had no places to really nurse, and it it grew awful for those who had newborn infants or those who were pregnant. So Jesus said, it's going to be really hard for them, and even beyond that, people became cannibals and just started eating each other. They would find anything they could to cure the ache in their stomach from loss of food. People, uh, just um, documents of people eating garbage, people eating dust in the street, people doing anything they could to cure what was wrong in their desire for food. And this is just a tactic of the, of the Romans to um, go after them and to take over cities. And this is why he says at the end, they will fall by the sword and be led captive. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jerusalem's gonna be totally depopulated by these Gentiles and handed over for a fixed period. Now, we know that was the Romans the Romans that were coming in to do this, there's a period of Gentile domination over this city. But here's what this is really going to do, which Jesus is revealing here. This is going to inaugurate the movement of this good news of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That this is no longer just gonna be an Israel thing, but a global thing. And this is huge in the scriptures, right? So, so here you have Jesus kind of laying this before them. We discussed how even God used the persecution that came and happened from AD 70 on to be a spread of the good news of the gospel. That's what happens when you read the book of Acts. I mean, you have actually the persecution that scatters the church that causes them to go to farther places to take this good news of the rescuing work of Jesus Christ. This is why in Acts one, you're gonna see Jesus say, you're gonna to go to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth with this great news that I have been killed and rose again for the forgiveness of sin and newness of life in Jesus Christ. It's a a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so here we see this kicks back all the way to Genesis 12. If you want to do some study on that, you have this guy named Abraham, right? And God comes to Abraham and he says, hey, through your descendants, the deliverer that I promised in Genesis 3 is going to come to restore all that went wrong. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Abraham was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And God comes to him and says, hey, by the way, I'm going to do this through you, not because you're awesome, but because you're the smallest most ghetto tribe in the world. You know why he does that? because God loves to flex his glory through the things that are weak and not the things that are strong. He loves to make his name known, his name famous, his renowned glorious through those that are weak. That's why you're gonna see throughout the Old Testament, you you have this basically uh, physical birth because Abraham gets circumcised and um, what you're going to see as you go through this kind of thing is he believes God in this promise of this coming Messiah and of the promises of God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. What God is doing in that moment is showing that salvation will always be through faith in the promises of God, namely in the promise of his son and what he has done. It's not going to be through lineage. It's not going to be through uh, your tribe. It's not going to be through just your nation. It's not going to be through birth. It's going to be through rebirth in Jesus Christ. That's why you'll see throughout the Old Testament there are Gentiles that come to faith in the God of the Jewish people because they believe in the God who makes these promises and in this Jesus Christ that is promised. And so as all of this trickles down, as all of this trusting in the future work of Jesus happens, him being the promised Messiah, that's how people are always brought into the family of God. And you'll see his descendants just start to roll out. You have physical descendants who are Jewish by birth and you have descendants that get included in the people of God who are Gentile. But all the while as you have this happening, God predominantly works through his people, the Jewish people. And then eventually here he's showing that it's no longer just gonna be through his Jewish people that the glory of God will be displayed, that his name would be made famous, but through the ends of the earth as the gospel goes forth through the times of the Gentiles. This is Romans 1 right? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to all who believe first to the Jews and then to the Gentile. He first came to the Jews, and he is going to now continue to go out to the Gentiles. So now the good saving work of Jesus gets told to every Jew and every Gentile, right? Because we want all to know the saving work of Jesus Christ. And man, this is why, as you, as you see kind of this, these, these inaugurations happen, these transitions happen in the Bible, this is why I love this, because this is everything the human heart longs for, Right? I mean, is this not everything that we as a, as a people long for, right? If you've if you got a soul of any kind, I mean, you long to see the reconciliation of tribes, tongues, nations living in harmony, living in unity, free from injustice, free from sorrow, free from pain in some way, shape, or form, right? We long to see Syrians and Jordanians together and the Chinese and the Russians and the Australians and the English and the Americans and the Israelis, right? We long to see everybody living in that way, and that's going to happen, but there's only one way that can ever happen. And it's through one man, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood to bring about reconciliation among every tribe, tongue, and people who would trust in his name. So this great hope in your heart that longs to be in a world that you think it should be like is only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus and in the new heavens and new earth where life will be exactly as we want it and all that God intended it to be. That is something to hope in. That should bring you tremendous hope. An encouragement that the fracture we see, not just in our sin, but across lines. Jesus says, my gospel came to penetrate over every single barrier of every tribe, nation, tongue. And to blow your mind as you see people operating together like that. That's why the church, the people of God today, it is so important. That's why we've been praying constantly as elders and as a church that we would see just such a great, beautiful blend here. And we're starting to see it and I love it, that the people of God gather around, not what they look like, not the culture that they share, but the God that they worship. And all of a sudden, that brings about unity and grace and love and depth that no one else can experience. And so here, you see Jesus kind of showing that this is going to be the way that it will happen. So Jesus is reminding them here, I've come not just for one nation, I've come for a people. And this is why, before he ascends, he gives that great edict to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And Jesus reminds us, though, that this time we have to love, share, go tell this good news of his saving work to the ends of the earth will eventually end, right? We don't have eternity to do this. So look at verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with the foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, I love this. you want to, you want to underline your Bible, underline this. Straighten up and raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. So this is great, the second coming. Jesus moves their, their eyes, the disciples going, okay, now after all this, after the destruction of the temple, after I rise again, okay, after you, you see these things, know that it's still not the end, like your, your mission's not over. Like there's gonna be a time where the end will fully come in the second coming and he shows that in the first time he came, it was humbly, it was meekly, it was obscurely. It was to a few, Mary and Joseph and the Magi and shepherds but when he comes a second time, the whole world will see him. Uh, The first time he came humbly, the second time will come in power and in glory. So there's gonna be a very, very different way that he returns than when he first came through the Virgin Mary. And Jesus says here, he's revealing something. Remember, last week he says, you're gonna see a lot of false teachers as time progresses, as the end draws near. Right, they're gonna to wanna to manipulate you. They're gonna to wanna to take you away from the gospel of grace. So here he shows not only there are gonna be deceptions from false teachers, but disasters. Right? There's gonna be cosmic disorder. Now, in a sense, we have to understand that every day that passes is a day nearer to Jesus returning. Okay? There's a sense that Jesus is clearly revealing that. Okay, but, but as you see him kind of say all these things, some scholars believe a lot of different things, and we don't have time for all those. Some believe this is a clear metaphorical description of the overflow of just Gentile rulers and powers. Others believe this is absolutely literal as to what will happen. Some believe this is the time of the tribulation after Christians get raptured. Some believe that this is actually a tribulation that, that we'll all kind of see and experience, that this isn't anything new before Jesus returns. Look, regardless, Jesus is saying to keep your head up and be faithful, he's going to end this thing going, endure every day because you really don't know when this is all going to happen. But you seeing these things is going to be an indication that clearly you're another day closer to the return of Jesus. We've seen plenty of cosmic disorder. That hasn't been anything new. But Jesus' whole point is the destruction of the temple does not mean the second coming is right at hand. So don't be misled. Stay faithful. Keep persevering. Keep enduring keep going and sharing and telling this good news of what I've done. You know, it is amazing, though, Um, if you talk to some, uh, well, I was gonna say legit scientists, but I guess if you're a scientist, I hope you're legit, but just if you talk to scientists that really have... Any really full understanding, there's, there's a lot of um, absolutely good uh, evidence for that if some type of celestial body kind of came right near the earth at any point in time that was big enough that it could tilt earth just like a degree on its axis that you would have rushing water and waves over the courses of all the land and lava from volcanic eruptions and lots of things. So uh, there are a lot of things that are possible in this thing that Jesus is absolutely literal in, but it doesn't change for us the mandate because we kind of slip in two camps. Some people are so overly concerned with the details that there are people dying going to hell and you don't do anything. You just stick your face in your book and just study. There are other people that, man, they're, they're so non-aware, they're so non-careful, or, or even concerned with the end of all things, or that Jesus will return, that you live your life with license, you don't think you, that it matters at all, the sin that enslaves, you don't think that you can kinda of just take Jesus any so there's no great warning over your soul. So there are two places we have gotta be careful of. There's a great place we can walk where we're not passive about it, but we're not overly active in it, and we just do what Jesus always says, which is the time of days are not for you to know exactly, precisely how it happens, aren't for you to know, but what you do need Need to know is it will happen, you do need to know as you see continued fracture in the world, keep your head up, keep persevering, keep leaning into Jesus because redemption is always a day closer. Redemption is always closer than yesterday and the day before that. And this is how this connects to the times of the Gentiles. Um, I don't have it on the screen, but in Matthew 24, during this discussion with his disciples, it's the same account uh, from Matthew's vantage point. And uh, he says this, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's a great text. I mean, because what that text is saying is the, the unmovable, unstoppable church of Jesus Christ with its unmovable, unstoppable message of Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ risen for sin, you have this unbelievable message that always presses forward with the good news through the ends of the earth to all tribes, tongues, nations, and once all who are supposed to hear have heard, then the end will come. You know why that's such good news? Because if you're wondering why Jesus hasn't come back, it's because there's still more people that need to hear it. I mean, people at times say, well, I don't understand why he hasn't come back yet. Or This is why we pray that God would continue to advance the message of the kingdom into all the nations because clearly we haven't gone far enough to every tribe enough because Christ has not returned. The end has not come. This is why we love giving to Acts 29, our network. They're one of the largest global, diverse church planning networks. They're going into emerging regions. They're planting healthy, good churches with great assessment in places where there are not churches yet. This is why we love ICM in the Philippines reaching ultra-poor and poverty-stricken people with local pastors and places in the Philippines that are very unreached. We want to aggressively go after and give and tell to people who need to hear it. This is why we love Pastor Wilson in Haiti, who is going into uncharted places in Haiti and planting churches and sharing the good news of Jesus, because we know that until the gospel goes to every person who's supposed to hear it, then the end will come. So if Jesus isn't here, we still got work to do. Right? I mean, if Jesus hasn't returned yet, then we know that our mission is still on green. So Jesus' warning is don't stall out. Don't hold up. Don't pull the e-brake. Jesus is ever-pressing, ever-moving forward, regardless of what it looks like in culture, regardless of what it looks like in the politics world. Regardless of what it looks like in your your business or in the place that you work, I mean, you might be in places where you're going, really, I mean, is the gospel advancing? Is it moving forward? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And it's a promise from Jesus. It might not look how we want it to look, but the promise is sure. And this doesn't lead us to shrink back, but push forward. He'll roll out the rest of chapter twenty-one, explaining, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Look at verse twenty-nine, and he told him a parable. I love this. Jesus always telling parables. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see that these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Very straightforward from Jesus. Uh, A fig tree was the first tree to ever show signs of leaves, which was to be the first sign that summer was approaching. So Jesus is very simply saying, just as you see nature in the same way, when the temple's burn to the ground, you'll be even closer to the second coming. You know that it's pointing to that, and it will be nearer than before. See, there will always be an aspect of useless argument and speculation on the second coming, to some degree. I would never say, of course, God has clearly given us things in scripture to know, but ultimately to push our hearts to live a faithful life. Not to spend all of it examining the time and day, but to know how we are to act and live with the day that's given to us today. You'll see that consistently in the scriptures. And even though the, the, the second coming is not the time and day exactly for us to know, here's one truth it preserves. That history's going somewhere, right? Like that's the one truth this promise preserves for us. That, that we are going somewhere. Like history is continuing to move in a certain direction. Now you've got the Stoics, they were guys that believed, hey, every 3,000 years the world would be caught up in some great big ball of fire and start all over again. So basically we're just walking on this eternal kind of treadmill. The Christian understanding, the Christian gospel, the Christian truth, the Christian story is that we know history is always going somewhere and it is ultimately always going to lead to Christ being Lord of everything right, and him being with his people from every tribe, tongue, nation, who have leaned into his finished work on the cross for forgiveness of sin, who will reign and rule with him for all of eternity in the new heavens and new earth. We know that history is going somewhere. We know that we're not just on repeat. We know we're just not reincarnated. We know that none of that cures us except the good news of Jesus being killed for us, and so that is all we know, and that is all we need to know that we're progressing towards Jesus Christ being Lord of everything and us being with that God if we know him and trust him. And so that's why Jesus says here, trust me, my words don't pass away. My words don't fail. Just as sure as you see nature predict things that will come, you can bet every word I say is absolutely accurate and sure in what will happen. Just as you see the destruction in AD 70, if you're calling me a liar now, when you see that, don't call me a liar when I return a second time. Because everything Jesus lays before us. You know, this happened exactly as he said it would. People fled. Those who stayed all died. Nursing moms had trauma. Rome surrounded the city and burned it to the ground. It's incredible. And so this confronts us with, do we believe Jesus at all? Because if Jesus is truly God, if Jesus truly rose, then every last thing he says, every last dot and tittle that he says from his mouth in the revealed scriptures that we have, we can trust So when he says to you, beware of religious systems that say you need to earn something to obtain heaven and grace from God, you can trust him. That it's grace alone and faith alone through Christ alone. If you hear Jesus say, your sin will kill you, it's better for you to pull out your eye than look at something lustfully. You can trust him. That your soul will rot. Like You don't have to play the game anymore. Like, like you're talking to the one who made all things. I mean, think about the people you go to sit under counsel with who are in a specific operation or business, right? I mean, if they do that thing, then you trust them, right? Here's here's the thing. Um, Jesus made every business and every idea. Like, Jesus made your mind. Like, Jesus made your the ways that you think, he made oxygen, he made particles, he made DNA strands, he made, he knows exactly how the world is to wired, be wired and be, so if you think for some reason you can take Jesus not at his word, you're fooling no one but yourself. So Jesus says, hey, everything I say is trustworthy. Everything I say will come to pass, will come to pass. When I say this is how marriage works, this is how marriage works. When I say this is how sin works, this is how sin works. When I say this is how the return of Christ works, this is how the return of Christ works. When I say this is how salvation works, this is how salvation works. But do we believe that his words will never pass away, that even when this current earth and heaven passes away before he recreates the new one, you know everything he said will continue and reverberate on into eternity. Every last word he said. When he says that hell is real, hell is real, Well, I don't really know, I mean, the exegesis there and the hermeneutics there, no, Jesus said, eternal place of torment, separation from God, place called Hades, weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Powerful, powerful. So here, what this does for us, guys, as Jesus said these things, this should create watchfulness, right? (laughs) This should create urgency. This should create an awareness. Look at verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake. That just means be alert, watchful. Doesn't mean you can't sleep, okay? <laughs> I've I've heard a lot of things in my short years of ministry. At all times, praying, because if you don't sleep, you won't be alert, you'll be a moron, okay? So at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the Mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him to hear in the temple. Jesus is gonna close this thing out going, um, the important thing is not to indulge in speculation or to give way to despair. Like Both of those are bad. So all this stuff that I'm laying before you, don't let it cause you to have unnecessary speculation, but also don't let it cause you to grow into deep despair and hopelessness. He's showing don't be weighed down by the cares of this life, by the struggle, by the trial. The return of Jesus doesn't lead us to complacency, but ever more hopefulness in what he will usher in finally and forever in his return. That, Like I said, all injustice, all sorrow, all pain, all sickness, all tragedy is going to be removed forever, and we will fully reign with God with the curse being lifted as we laugh and enjoy good food and yet are never hungry and work yet never grew tired and never toil in ways that are are exhaustive i mean this is incredible to think about he says man your head should be straight and lifted preparing for your redemption that is drawing near be watchful don't fall into despair don't fall into carelessness be ever more vigilant in awaiting the return of jesus Now when he says, don't let it come on you like a trap, that's the same language that kicks back to when the flood came. Same word here, that the people in Noah's day, right, they're like, oh, no rain's coming, no flood's coming. And they got caught in their misunderstanding. They were trapped in their ignoring. So Jesus is saying, don't get trapped in not believing me. Don't, get, don't find yourself trapped on that day going, oh man, I was told by a preacher, I was told by a friend, I was told by a, a coworker, I was told this good news of Jesus Christ who forgives sin, I was told this day would come where he would return again and I didn't believe it. It's profound. He says, don't let it come upon you like a trap. You know, um, one of the hardest things for me and maybe for you is this reality here with all we have around us. Because what Jesus is saying here is we must never come to think we live in a settled situation. Like we should always be living in a state of expectation. Always living in the shadow of eternity. Always living with the certainty that one day we will soon appear before God. This is why, if you read Paul, he applauds the Thessalonian church because of their eagerness in awaiting the second coming. And this is what Jesus is saying. So I wanna have just two thoughts in closing. What does watchfulness mean for us? And if you do a study on watchfulness, on alertness, on perseverance, on enduring, this is everything you're seeing here. If you do any type of study on that, you're gonna basically see it break down in two ways. Um, The first is watching your life, putting your sin to death, right? Growing in holiness through the good news of Jesus Christ killed for you and gifting you his own. The other way you're gonna see it kinda work out is prayer connected with spiritual warfare. This is Ephesians six, Colossians four, and many other places. Okay, so so just those two. Um, So so number one, just this understanding of us watching our life, because some of us, I just want to ask, like like number one, like do you even believe he's going to return? And if you do believe that, are you are you concerned at all? Like if he were to turn this afternoon, how would he find you? How would he find your heart? How would he find your habits? I'm not talking about him judging you on salvation. I'm talking about him judging you upon your life. We learned this in the parable of the the ten minas, right? That he will absolutely hold us accountable for how we stewarded the things that he gave us. Are you just apathetic and carefree, ignorant of that truth, or do you aggressively and alertly find yourself aware of it which impacts your decisions, impacts your day to day, impacts the ways that you love people well? Because take note of that we might be able to stand before the Son of Man. That's Jesus. So first for the Christian. Um, Jesus says, pray for the strength to endure, knowing that we'll stand before him. Right? So, so does your life reflect watchfulness? Watchfulness. Does your, do you take sin seriously in putting it to death through the power of Jesus Christ? And I just want to mention a few things here. Paul says in Colossians 3, okay, because, because sin is the one thing that's going to constantly taint the glory of God through the lens of your eyeballs, and it's also the thing that is going to constantly lure you and entice you away from having a lot of affection for his name. So if we know that about sin, that it fundamentally taints all that is good, all that is glorious, if we pursue that and don't take it seriously, there will be no watchfulness in your life, no alertness, no readiness when he returns. So so here's what I want you to see. Just two things. When I read Colossians chapter 3 where Paul says put sin to death, here's what I find more often than not. I find more often than not people don't want to put it to death. They just want to kind of manage it well. You want to keep it alive. You want to keep it available. You don't want to kill it. You want to somehow maybe train it. You want to teach it how to act in your life. Teach it how to be appropriate. So here's what um, I was thinking about. Um, Because we don't really want to kill our sin, if some of us are honest, we just want to kind of keep it alive and ready. Whenever a time in your, your life hits where you get frustrated or you get angry or you get tired or you get disgruntled or you think someone owes you something that they did not give you, what you do is you run to that sin instead of the God of the universe for comfort. So you just always try to keep that sin available. So you run to that thing to try to appease the ache in your soul, instead of running to God who gave you his righteous life for your sinful life, instead of the God who took all the wrath for you, instead of the God that says I've given you my Holy Spirit and all the weapons of the gospel to aggressively fight and put to death that sin, you keep it alive. You think somehow a lion that's designed to devour and kill you can somehow train. So you just play around with it. You don't take it seriously. You don't think it's crouching at your door, to borrow the language of Genesis. You don't think that 1 Peter 5, the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And so what I'll do is I'll just kind of keep it in a good place. And I think this is why many of us get stuck in this cycle of sin where you do really well for a season, then fall right back into it. Because you never put it to death. You have not used the weapons of the gospel. It's because you simply want to train your sin rather than murder it. It's the only time the Bible will give us the freelance to murder or to kill, it's when it's towards our sin. Often I've sat down with some of you and we'll talk about a struggle or an issue. And look, let me make sure you all understand, all of us are on a trajectory. Like I'm not talking about sinless life, flawless life. I'm talking about constantly repenting of the sin that bubbles up in our souls. Constantly putting to death that sin that desires to enslave. It's a work in progress, but it's a trajectory of going north. Right? It's not absence, it's not ignorance. And so, so here's what happens. Is, as I speak to a lot of you, um, in one in particular, let, let's say it's lust. We, we talk about just what to put it to death, what that might mean, and we don't want to go to that place, because you want to keep it available. I mean, Jesus will say it's better to gouge out your eye than be thrown in the lake of fire. But you'd rather keep your eye in and be thrown in the lake of fire, maybe. It's sobering. Jesus' says, watchfulness creates alertness, which takes our sin very seriously because we know that Jesus could return at any moment. So listen, sin was never, if sin wasn't serious, would God have his own glorified son slaughtered? Right, you ever thought about that? I mean, if sin was just like a minor deal, would you have gone to the pains, the stakes of having the full wrath of God poured out on his own son who would bleed and die and suffer and be mocked and shamed and scorned, riddled on the cross, mauled on the cross for you and me simply because sin is something we could train? I mean, if it took Jesus Christ, the very God-man, to put it in the grave and kill it, do you think you're going to be able to do that outside without any help outside of you? And that's why the good news of the gospel is you can say no to every bit of sin that resides in your mortal flesh because if you have been given the Holy Spirit of God who demonstrated that he did that and will continue to do that as you trust in what he did for you and live according to that. You absolutely can. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I see that are plagued by self-pity by saying, I, I just can't. No, you can if you're a Christian. You absolutely can. You can absolutely say no to every last temptation that faces you by calling account, making that obedient to Christ, saying, God, what would you do in this? Remind me of who I am as your son, as your daughter. Remind me of the the shed blood and the slaughtered body of Jesus on my behalf so that I have righteousness to stand before God the Father, not just righteousness to stand before him, but righteousness to walk with him, in him right now, in the midst of this grueling assault. And as you walk away from it, I promise you, it will evidence more peace, more joy, more life every time. I've never met one person that says the opposite. And the one who continues to fall back into that and chase that thing continues to find greater distress and greater ache and greater discouragement and greater perplexity. And, and so he's saying we should live our lives watched. That's why the passage of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, common one, right? That we read, it says, don't be tempted beyond God won't tempt you beyond what you're able to bear because God is faithful, always provide a way of escape. Um, I feel like we hear that passage and we think that's God saying, um, he's not gonna put you in a situation you can't get out of. Careful. Because if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, you can get out of every situation. So it's not God going, I'm not sure, man, I'm not gonna put Mike there because he might get mauled. So I'm gonna keep him over here not oh, what he's saying. The way of escape is available to every Christian in every scenario. And that's Christ crucified. That's the weapons of the gospel, the community of faith. Brothers and sisters, the gathering people of God is where we come together and enact the rule of the king. If, if you're walking in isolation, you're gonna get killed. If you think that you're strong enough, you don't need the church, you need brothers and sisters, you don't need anybody else in your life, I'm good, I can do this thing. Man, you are a fool. That's a weapon of the gospel. And I'm not talking about like you're, you're one person that's somehow on an island somewhere that you can phone call like once a month. Talk about people that you rub shoulders with in the faith family of God that He's sovereignly placed you in to grow in grace. He's given us the preaching of God's word. He's given us the, the coming together. He's giving us the community of faith. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us His word. He's given us prayer. He's given us weapons to wage war. So you and I have to understand that we can absolutely say no to our sin. Now if you have not been raised with Jesus Christ, you have no choice, you're in bondage to sin. At the end of the day, you will ultimately always choose sin over glory and worship to God. But Christ can absolutely redeem that. But if you're a Christian, you can say no to your sin and walk in freedom, absolutely. You know what's amazing to me? I, I ask a lot of people when I meet, when was the last time you actually took a verse of the Bible, a sovereign word of God, and actually obeyed it? Let's just take a situation, right, where you, were, you were, just had the onslaught of that temptation and you took one verse of Scripture and actually obeyed it in that moment. Those are defining moments. For most of us, You don't put the Bible to the test. You assume by some ignorance that it won't work. And so maybe Jesus is saying, my words won't pass away. Trust me. This is good. Let's do this. Let's wage war together. Now, to the non-Christian, you need to have someone stand before Jesus you won't be able to stand, right? Fundamentally, first step is always not you trying to manage your sin and get some psychiatric help to give you more methods. right? The first step is you need a new soul, you need a new heart, you need a new mind, and the gospel says I didn't come to make you kind of this you know, uh, trained new version of you, I came to make your whole nature new in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, when you stand before God when he returns, you're gonna need someone to step in your place as your champion for your sin, and Jesus, that's the amazing thing about the gospel is Jesus actually stands for you in front of himself. Like as we stand before the Son of Man one day right with God the Father and all his glory in the this, in this second return, Jesus will actually be the one who stands for the Christian in front of himself. And Jesus will say, I paid your, fo- paid your debt in full. I did it for you. It is finished. And from there we can start working and walking. Number two, the watchfulness and readiness connected to prayer and spiritual warfare. That's how we'll land the plane. Um, This is a word for you, a word for me. Jesus loves us, Satan hates us. Jesus wants to advance his church, Satan wants to aggressively oppose his church. Sin will kill you, Jesus will give life. Sin will enslave you, Jesus will free you. Sin will deceive you. Jesus will make clear. And the leading edge of Satan's efforts in the world, in this, in this warfare, right, constantly, one of his main onslaughts towards us in our watchfulness, in our alertness, in our readiness, one of the one things he does is try to mislead you by false religions. It's one of the primary things he does. That's why Paul will say that it's a doctrine of demons, Right, that, that all false systems, all false ideologies there is a doctrine of demons because Satan will always in this world use religion to mislead people. This is why Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is so aggressively against these religious Pharisees and scribes and elite who were leading people astray. Instead of saving them and helping them, they were damning them. That's why part of this destruction of the, of the temple, I believe, is part of God's wrath and vengeance towards a system that was damning people. When he says that this is a day of wrath, a day of vengeance, this is God saying, hey, this is wrong, this is bad, this is leading people not towards me, but away from me. And so you constantly see that this is how they will use it. This is what Satan will use, because Satan knows by nature, you and I are a religious creature. We're, we're a creature that longs to worship. We, we all are like that. And because he knows this God consciousness in all of us, he will put something before you, an ideology, a system, a thought, a way to try to either cover up your sin, diminish your sin, or distract you from your sin. And so because he knows all that, because he knows the moral law is written on our hearts, because he knows that all of us have eternity written on the inside of our fabric, on the inside of our souls, he knows that all this is going to lead you to a cause and effect of, well, there must be a moral lawgiver if there's some moral code which ultimately leads you to God. So let me throw an ideology before you to believe that to get to that God or be made right with that God is always a system of works. And he's got something for everybody. So the outright legalist he'll just have you cover up your sin by just going to church more and praying more prayers and being more moral yeah just keep doing that and then and then the licentious person or the blatantly immoral person here just take atheistic belief or deistic belief or uh let's just get you know on on this train or the irreligious train or the universalist train He'll, he'll do whatever it can just to put you in some sort of camp ideology or thought to lure entice and drag you away from the free mercy of grace in christ alone That you can do nothing to stand before the Son of Man, even with endurance and watchfulness. That you can't even persevere and adorn the faith without Him and His work. We learned that last week. That saving faith can't fail. That it's His grip upon us that keeps us and preserves us. This is such good news to your heart. This is such good news to your mind. That even in the onslaught, part of the watchfulness is consistently believing the truth of what Jesus Christ did for us. That we ask God for alertness and readiness not to believe the lies of other systems and thought, but the one true way that we can be made right with God. And he's gonna use everything outside of us, culture, media, friendships, Facebook, YouTube, the library, everything. It's a fight and we desperately need the family of faith, the weapons of the gospel, the word of God, deep desperate prayer to keep us faithful and watchful and enduring. though he could return at any moment, and how would he find us? Let's ask God to do some work in us. I wanna give you all a minute just to do some examination and to consider what might it mean for you to be watchful, to be alert, When Jesus says to you, you can trust every word that I say, where are you lacking belief in his word? Where are you not believing something that he says to you? It may be in your home life. It may be in your marriage. It may be with a sin that you just love to keep available that you refuse to put to death through the power of Christ crucified and the indwelling Holy Spirit that is in you. For others of you, where you may be believing a false religious system, an untrue gospel, that somehow by your merits and works, you're made right with God. That in some way he's trying to diminish or discount sin that is serious and keep you from seeing how glorious the purchasing work of Jesus is, that he actually was killed for that sin because it was that serious and that damning, that he took wrath upon himself, that he was raised so that he could raise us in newness of life. Christian, you can walk in freedom. You can absolutely live a life that is hope-filled and not fear-filled. understand Jesus is saying all these things because everyone else will be characterized by fear in these events. And he says you should be characterized with a hopeful watchfulness and alertness. Some of you in this room, before you even get to watchfulness, you need to deal with the sin that has not been dealt with fully and finally by Jesus Christ. That you can trust Jesus this morning and turn from your sin and embrace him as savior, lord, king, ruler. That you can be raised to newness of life. That you can have a new mind and a new heart. So that you can then see the world clearly and begin to walk in this world clearly is the way that God intended and the way that God designed to then live a watchful life awaiting your Savior's return. Ask him for mercy. Ask him to save you. Father, I pray in this moment you would help us right where we need our help. Lord, I'm so thankful that you are a God that is over every last strand of every last heart. That God, you can see right through us. That God, you know our thoughts in this moment. You know our needs in this moment. You know our motives in this moment. God, we ask your Holy Spirit to please graciously work in these moments to produce fruit that lasts, to produce lasting change, only through the power of your risen Son, who was slaughtered for us. The only way our debt could be paid, the only way our sin could be forgiven, the only way reconciliation could be found with God. Father, help us to live watchful lives Help us to live alert, ready lives. We really need help in this. And God, as we observe the table, as we remember the precious work of your body broken, your blood being shed, we do it with gratitude, remembering that this is what saves and sustains our souls. That this is the thing that keeps us watchful and alert. This is the thing that took sin seriously and killed it in the grave so that we could live in newness of life free from sin. Father, help us do a work in Jesus' name. Amen.